I'm Father Mitch Paquin, and welcome to EWTN Live, where we bring you guests from all around the world. And tonight we have a great topic. We'll be talking about an old friend of the network, Alice von Hildebrand. And though she's passed away, a collection of her essays has just been made available. We'll talk about that. But before we get to it, I'd like to talk with our friend Jack about uh, what is going on in radio. Jack, what have you got? Well, Father Mitch, uh, in the early 90s, you may remember, uh, Mother Angelica was actually contemplating pulling back from the network. I mean, she was the abbess of a cloistered monastery, sure. for crying out loud, and uh, devoting more of her time to her sister. So she took that notion before her spouse, in the chapel and she said that not only did he tell her that she wasn't to pull away from the TV enterprise but he wanted her to start a shortwave radio network mm -hmm. so she said but I don't know anything about shortwave radio and she said he said I know get started so she went through a bunch of channels she thought this would happen in Rome where all the languages right. of the world right. come together but she just kept running into so much European bureaucracy that she finally came to the conclusion that that wasn't the, girl, the, the door but the Lord was opening. So she started looking for land here and up on a little mountaintop about 45 minutes from here in Vandiver, Alabama. She built that shortwave radio facility. Uh, 1992 is when that went on the air uh, with the funding from a Dutch businessman uh, who very generously financed that project. And then in 1996, well actually 95 was kind of the seminal moment in mm -hmm. Catholic radio when she went on this very show and said that if anybody had a radio station or had the means to procure one, she would provide the programming for them free of charge. So by the end of 1996, six people had taken her up on that offer. And as we sit here today, we have over 300 English affiliates here in the United States and over 500 between English and Spanish worldwide. So what I'm here to talk to you about tonight is we bring those affiliates in to Birmingham every year for a conference uh, to give them a little spiritual and professional development in running these apostolates. These people are largely not radio people. They've never run a business. Some of them, I'm pretty convinced, probably couldn't balance their checkbooks. And they've been given this great responsibility following the call of Mother Angelica. So this year the conference is October 18th, 19th, and 20th, right here in Birmingham, Alabama. The Wednesday the 18th will be a retreat day at the Shrine of the Most Blessed Sacrament. And then we'll have radio conference activities for the next two days. So anybody who thinks that they might be feeling a little tug on their heart to bring Catholic radio to an area that doesn't have it, this would be a wonderful opportunity for them to come and join us for the radio conference. Uh, if you're a board member of one of our existing affiliates, talk to your board members, your fellow co-workers, and tell them you need to come down here and, and get some edification on how to improve your apostolate. All the information can be found excuse me, at EWTNCRC.com. That's EWTNCRC.com, and we hope to see everybody in October. Yeah, that'd be a great thing. And again, it's not just for the folks who already have radio stations. It's for those who are interested in perhaps starting them as well. Exactly right. Thanks, Jack. Appreciate it very much. We'll be back with our guest for tonight, so please stay with us.
Welcome back. Our guest tonight is a translator, a writer, and the president and founder of the Hildebrand Project. And he's here to share with us his thoughts on the late Alice von Hildebrand, who was a Catholic philosopher and writer, just like her husband, Dietrich von Hildebrand, and a great and long-term friend of the network. Many of you can remember her very sharp and charming wit, uh, deep insights, plus lots and lots of remembrances and tributes from Alice's friends have been compiled into this new book. Uh, it's the first published selection of her essays, and the title of the book is Remnant of Paradise which was edited by our guest. So please welcome the founder and president of the Hildebrand Project, Mr. John Henry Crosby. Great to be with you, Father. Good Nash. to have you, yeah, John. Glad to be back. Good to have you. Yes, it's been a while since you've been here. Yeah. And, you know, for those who remember, I know Alice was a frequent guest on Mother Angelica's show. Later on, she frequently was on... Uh, the program with me, we interviewed her, had a lot of fun with her interviews. And she lived to be almost a hundred, correct? That's right. Yeah, yeah she, was, she was born just um, six weeks or so before Mother Angelica. That's right, yeah, March and, 11th, 1923. And, you know, as, as such, um, you know, uh, she lived considerably longer than Mother. Uh, just died how long ago now? In Jan January of 2021. Yes, yeah, so it's been yeah. just two years. So, uh, you know, she's much missed, but this is a way to make some of her thought available to ongoing generations. It's one thing to watch her and to have seen her in the past, but now to be able to read more of her writing that's is right. well worth having so thank you for doing that oh it was a, a privilege and a pleasure to put it together difficult because the choices were not easy to make mm -hmm. she was very prolific and we had to find a way to uh, find something representative of her work mm -hmm. uh, and get it into one volume and i think part of the solution to this is there needs to be future volumes of essays sure sounds like a good idea now you call this remnant of paradise I take it that was not her title. No, and in fact, this book uh, was, was it, I guess it was conceived of in her lifetime. Friends of hers would say, we need a collection of your, of your essays and articles, mm -hmm. but nothing ever materialized. And she, she knew that we intended to do something like this. I would tell mm -hmm. her, and in fact, she would occasionally sort of wonder whether it was worth it. She would say, shouldn't you be publishing more of my husband's works, more mm -hmm. translations, more more new editions, and I said, no, there's, you have an important voice, and there's, there's no uh, good introduction to your thought. You know, she's written all of these wonderful individual books, The Privilege of Being a Woman, or the biography of her husband, uh, mm -hmm. The, the um, Soul of a Lion, but there was no way of getting sort of in one cover sort of her thoughts on a range of issues. And so we said, we're going to do this for you. Yes. So that's, that's what became this book. Now, she passed away uh, as the book was in process and being conceived of. And so that's how you mentioned before the remembrances by her friends. This is a book of essays and remembrances by her friends. And uh, that came to be because we collected so many recollections and remembrances after her passing. And they were such a wonderful 
sort of uh, reflection of her and her personality, that it just seemed that they were destined to go into the book. And I, I always had the feeling that, that she lived in the hearts of her fans and readers in a, such a unique way. And so to have that reflected back through these wonderful stories yeah, was really yeah. worth it. So it makes up about a third of the book, but I, I think it's a wonderful addition. But my, one of my questions is, why would you call this remnant of uh, paradise? Yeah, yeah. What's, what's the connection to paradise in yeah. these essays? Well, it's a very Hildebrandian kind of title. Um, in fact, I was telling my mother at one point about the title of this book, and she said, oh, Gogo, who was Dietrich, and Lily, they, they always spoke about all sorts of different remnants of paradise in the world. They had a strong sense of how sort of the great and beautiful things of this world are, are perhaps traces of the original paradise. But Lily would often say that friendship is the remnant of paradise, and she said it to many of her friends. Mm -hmm. And she said it in such a way that I think we also felt somehow that she uh, valued our, our friendship, her love for us was great enough that she perceived it, mm -hmm. uh, these relationships as a remnant of paradise. So it seemed, first of all, an evocation of a theme that was strong in her. There's an essay in there on friendship that explores this. And it's very interesting, again, in these remembrances by her friends, quite a number of them make mention of this remnant, friendship is a remnant of paradise. They had no idea it was gonna go into a book by this title. So it mm -hmm. seemed an evocative title to pull together um, all of her thought and, and perhaps using a, um, uh, a phrase that meant so much to us, her friends. There's another aspect too that I, I noticed is she makes, in, in the, some of these essays, she makes a number of references to God's original intention yes. for humanity in paradise. Mm -hmm. And it seems as if that is another part of this title. Um, one of her insights is the importance of woman. Yes. Uh, even though she didn't call herself a feminist, she was definitely a champion of the feminine and the greatness of being a woman. She, uh, and she could do that without being a feminist. Talk a bit about that aspect of her. Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, I like what you just said. I think that's the, there's another dimension there in the title. And uh, Lily was very, Lily being Alice, as, as we referred to her, her friends and family, uh, had a strong sense of, of great archetypes. Uh, and of course, Our Lady and Eve, these are the kind of archetypes that animated her imagination. Uh, but to, to the point about, about Lily as a champion of, of the feminine, I think that's a very, it's very well put. And in fact, there's an interview in this book uh, in which she, she makes more or less that point. You know, I, I'm not a Catholic feminist. I'm a Catholic who's very interested in elevating femininity. And you know, her, the essential insight was that she felt that, that, the, that many of the early and mid 20th century feminists were um, you know, in their efforts to elevate women and give them equality and equal rights, did it really at the expense of what was essential uh, to being a woman. And so she wanted to recover uh, those essential qualities. And for her, they were rooted in things like, first of all, the equal dignity of man and woman, but also the complementarity between man and woman. Mm -hmm. The fact is that they're not just reducible uh, to each other's as if, as, if as if there's just one set of common traits. And she, you know, she, in, in some sense, she, you, you might say she pushed the envelope because she was willing to name what she thought were distinctively masculine traits and distinctively feminine traits. In any case, it was important for her that humanity is man and woman. Mm -hmm. And so that was, that, was, that was a great thrust of her, of her work. 
uh, and that's reflected in a number of the essays in this volume. Well, one of the feminists she disagrees with very strongly and frequently is Simone de Beauvoir. Yes, uh, her nemesis. Her, yeah, <laughs> and Simone de Beauvoir, for those who don't know, was a French feminist, a very early one. Yes. Uh, she wrote the, I believe, the Second Sex. Second Sex, yeah. Yeah, that was her uh, her book. And uh, while Simone de Beauvoir, uh, who had a tragic life, her she lived with Jean Paul Sartre, who was a French existentialist, yeah. who, by his own admission, struggled his whole life not to commit suicide because his <laughs> philosophy could not sustain him. And then finally, at the end of his life, he came back to his Catholic faith and received the sacraments, uh, including confession and the uh, extreme unction. But Simone de Beauvoir didn't follow him in his Catholic conversion. Uh, and she she talks about how these feminists are like the Old Testament brother Esau. They sold their feminine genius, their feminine gifts for a bowl of soup, a, a, of lentil soup. Yeah. Uh, as a, some translations say a bowl of pottage, bowl of pottage but it was yeah. lentil soup. Um, talk a bit about that uh, comparison, what she says on that. Yeah, well, she thought that, that many women were willing to make an extraordinarily bad trade in that in, in an effort to, uh, to assure their equal dignity, uh, certain, um, there, there, was, there was a confusion about what they were giving up in order to, uh, to achieve that. And so she was very interested in, in, um, in elevating, she thought, she thought that, as she put it in, in one of the essays, that, um, that the modern feminist movement, for whatever its achievements, and one could have a separate discussion about whether Lily always appreciated, you know, some of the more positive things. There are other strains of, 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 of modern feminism besides those that she was preoccupied with. But she felt that the that these movements did um, uh, did not recognize the sort of the essential vocation of woman. Uh, which she saw in maternity, but not only in physical maternity, but also in spiritual maternity. She thought it was the essence of woman to be mother. And so she, she simply thought that, that to, to give up such a high vocation, uh, particularly as embodied in Our Lady, uh, was, was simply, um, like you say, giving up your femininity for the mess of pottage. Yeah. And one, one of the great analogy or points that she raised, not an analogy, it's a point, uh, Simone de Beauvoir and some of the other feminists would say that why isn't there a female Shakespeare? There's no female Beethoven, no female Mozart, and so on. And, and she was complaining that this is what makes us the second sex. And yet, uh, you know, Alice von Hildebrand brings out that all these things that men produce in culture, monuments, buildings, governments, etc., all of these are going to be completely swept away at the end of time when Christ comes back to judge the earth. But what women have produced, namely the human beings who have immortal souls yes, right. and immortal life, 
they are going to last forever while all the men's projects yeah. are going to be destroyed. Yeah. So she says, yeah. why are you complaining? Yeah. We've got eternity for our project. Yeah, yeah. she had no, uh, no, um, no sense of envy about the fact that uh, many of the great works of literature and art that she herself loved so much had been produced by men. She, she simply thought that women um, and women's contributions to the world are, are so immense, but again, she, wanted, she spent a lot of her time trying to win women back to a certain confidence and appreciation. That's why she wrote her book, The Privilege of Being a Woman, to try to restore yes. that sense of what, what a gift it is to be a woman. And you know that she, I remember a, a great conversation we had on this program where she talked about how, you know, in a woman's womb, God still creates. There's no more physical creation because, you know, we, we know from physics that uh, uh, the law of conservation of energy that no, uh, no matter is created or destroyed anymore. It just changes forms. Mm -hmm. But where God does create is when a child is conceived within a woman quite some time after the man is no longer necessarily even present but the the child is conceived in her womb god creates in a woman's womb he creates a soul yeah. and that is a new creation with each soul yeah. and yeah. this is something that she very much cherished as uh, the great privilege of womanhood. That's right, that's right. She often spoke about how God touches the woman's body when he brings that soul, when he creates that new soul in the, in the new life that, that is now in the, in, the, in, the, in the mother's womb. And that, that gave her a sense of incredible awe before the woman's body and the beauty and mystery of the body. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that God took up, that, he, that, that, that his presence was so near uh, yes. the woman during the creation of the soul. Exactly, exactly, in a way that men can only look at from afar. And another aspect of her championing of femininity is, comes from her examination of Our Lady. She thought a lot about the Blessed Virgin she Mary. Did. She did, yeah. And one aspect is she wanted to promote Our Lady as the mother of widows. Queen of widows. Queen of widows. Yeah. Uh, that was her term, correct. Uh, tell us, what, what did she mean by that? Well, she has a wonderful little article in this book, um, and she reflects on the fact that, uh, that's, that millions of women throughout, at any point in time, and certainly throughout the history of mankind, perhaps billions of women uh, become widows. And uh, they, having had a life of, of, of of an intimate union and closeness with a, with a spouse are, are alone and often alone for uh, very long periods of time. Lily herself experienced that as a widow. She was 34 years younger than, than her husband. And so she felt that of all the different titles that Our Lady had received, one honoring her as widow had never been given. And she thought that it would be an immense consolation and another source of meditation on the mysteries of Our Lady's life mm -hmm. if Our Lady were recognized this way. And, and, and you know, she, she asserts, Lily asserts in this essay that, 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 that Our Lady was surely a widow at the foot of the cross because surely St. Joseph would have been there and it would have been noted. Now, what you may have, I don't know whether you have a, a different view about 
our certainty that Our Lady was a, a widow, but that's the premise for this article, that uh, Our Lady no, was I, most I, certainly... I think she develops that well. St. Joseph was there to bring her to Bethlehem. He stayed with her uh, through the birth of Christ. He protected yeah. her and Jesus on the way to Egypt and for that time that they were in Egypt, yes, right. perhaps a couple of years. Uh, and then protected them on the way back from Egypt to Nazareth. They were still with, St. Joseph was with Our Lady and Jesus. Uh, and then when Jesus was lost, he's searching, he's very active. Yes, his silent, presence is felt, right. Silent, yeah. but active. And then he's not there at the death of Christ. The, the, the only logical explanation yeah. is that he had passed away. That's right, that's right. Which is why another reason that we call him the patron saint of a happy death, because he had Jesus and Mary next to him. That's right, in his that's death. right, that's right. So you, in any you case, see that in one of the stained glass windows at the church of St. Joseph in Nazareth, which is just across the courtyard from the Church of the Annunciation. Oh, interesting, interesting. Yeah. Well, in any case, that, that is one of, of Lily's reflections on Our Lady, uh, and, and, a very, and, and perhaps an original insight that she drew. And I think a lot of people have, uh, would take consolation from her suggestion, and certainly this essay is, is a beautiful. I w I've shared it with women who, um, uh, who are either widows or for whom there's some poignancy about this. Maybe they had a parent who was a widow, um, and it, it's meant a great deal to them. Yeah, yeah. And I just want to bring up one other little point along this line. You said this is one of her insights. She is an ironic character in that she did not try to have original thought That's right. for its own sake. Yeah. She only tried to seek the truth because the truth unifies people and getting all sorts of errors and false opinions is what divides us. That's right. You know, and while she was trying to have a, uh, the unity of truth, she became very creative because she sought that one truth that is in God. That's right, that's right. No, she, she was very fond of saying that uh, we, we deserve a patent for our errors. Uh, <laughs> the truth is not mine, it's not yours, it's ours. So she had a very powerful sense of the unifying effect of truth, also the liberating effect of truth. For, you know, truth, as she says in, in one of her essays, was so often presented as totalitarian or regret, retrograde or some form of imposition on the freedom mm -hmm. of, of, of persons. But what she found time and time again with her students was that it was the discovery of truth that finally liberated them from themselves, from, themselves, from their own... Um, uh, enslavement to, to sin and, and, and so on and so forth. So it's, it's a wonderful, uh, I, I find her to be a wonderful example of how originality, in per, it perhaps in some respect, is a byproduct of the sincere search for truth, right? Because she did have many characteristic and deep insights. I think she's also proof that the pursuit of truth is not boring, right? Sometimes I think people think, well, these truth-loving people, they just, they're just going to parrot, you know, a narrow set of, 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 um, of, of statements and propositions but there was nothing boring about being in her presence, right? She radiated no. and refracted all sorts of different dimensions of truth. And, and when you think about how someone like the Wright brothers found out certain truths of the role of wind and certain aspects of design, they found that truth, and from finding the truth of yeah. physics, 
they invented flying. Yeah. <laughs> Finding the truth is creative, while trying to be creative with apart from the truth is totalitarian. I'd like to show a little clip okay. of Alice being interviewed by Mother Angelica and their interaction, especially about some of these students. You mentioned her students yeah. uh, and yeah. such. This goes back to 1998 when she was talking about being in the classroom at Hunter College in New York City fighting for truth. So let's take a look at this. I recall that I had a student taking a course of medieval philosophy. And after a couple of weeks, she raised her hand and she says, why do you keep talking about God? And I said, my dear friend, because when you teach medieval philosophy, you can't escape it. Because imagine these people happen to be interested in the question of whether there was a God and who God was. Whether they were Jewish or Arab or Christian, they were interested about it. So how do you want me to talk about medieval philosophy and not mention God? She said, well, I object to it because I'm an atheist. Are you an atheist? Why are you an atheist? He said, because I'm scientifically minded. Hmm. Well, that's very impressive. <laughs> and I said, well, of course, scientifically minded. He said, what do you mean you're scientifically minded? He said, you know, I don't accept anything if it is not verifiable. And I said, that sounds very good indeed. Could you explain to me what you mean by this? Yes, the day I see God under a microscope, then I will believe. And then I was silent for a moment, looked very concerned, and I said, you know, life is so funny. The day you discover God under a microscope, I'll be the atheist. <laughs> and I took care of it. <laughs> I mean, just imagine you have a microscope and you see a little thing moving, and you say, that's God. <laughs> when she was quiet, she never disturbed me again. And there was another one, oh, that was a funny one, uh, who was in love with evolution. Well, the, don't you understand evolution is something so magnificent that we descend from apes. I mean, that is a great news. And then she sort of shook at me and said, you must admit that we descend from animals. And I said, I truly don't know. I'm too ignorant. And as far as I know, the missing link hasn't been found. But I said, just imagine uh, that I had interest in my genealogy. And I go to Salt Lake City because the Mormons have these marvelous genealogies. And I worked for there for weeks. And I found out that way back in the Middle Ages, one of my ancestors was Louis IX of France, the greatest king that ever existed, a saint. You know, I have some French blood, so it's not impossible, very much as possible as you're Italian, that you descend from Dante. Who knows? I mean, if you make some. <laughs> He's not my favorite man. Yeah. Dante. I said Dante. I love him. You do? Of course. But he that's wrote... because you're French and I'm Italian. <laughs> <laughs> well, I said to her, now suppose that I discover that actually I descend from a French king and a saint. Well, in some subtle way, I will inform my students that I still have some blue blood running in my veins. And then they will respect me. Now I say, you claim that your great, 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 great grandmother jumped from tree to tree in Africa. <laughs> 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 
On second and I said, thought, no. I'll take Dante. No, I said. <laughs> so I said, no. The day the missing link is discovered, I will accept it, but I would not brag about it as you do. <laughs> That's classic example of how she was focused on another element. Not only does she is she committed to truth, but as is necessary to be committed to truth, she is humble about it. She says, I don't know, I don't have the evidence. She doesn't say adamantly, I uh, disagree, I don't like this idea, so it's wrong. No, she says, I don't know. Yes. And then she has a little fun with it by saying, but if it is true, don't brag. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But sh this was another quality that she wanted not only to live herself, but to evoke from people. When you don't know something, simply admit that. That's right. That's right, yeah. And she also had, I think, uh, we, had, we had talked about this earlier, she had a great sense of the way in which um, um, so much of what we receive, we receive through grace. Um, so there was, a, there was a kind of basic openness that she had, whether it was to learn new things, and she had this voracious intellect. I mean, as you know, she, the amount of things she could tell you about, uh, I love as, uh, as an aside the fact that when she and her husband couldn't fall asleep at night, they would try to recite all the French kings from memory. You know, so talk about a, <laughs> an interesting yeah. uh, approach. A and apparently they tried to do the popes as well, so. <laughs> Pretty good. But in any case, she had a, she had a, a strong sense of um, our need for, to receive grace. She was also very, uh, she had a certain sense for, uh, she thought there were certain kinds of questions that had a kind of impertinence in them uh, with respect to the ultimate things, to questions about God. And so she would sometimes say, I, I think we ought to remain silent on this, or perhaps we'll fight. She says in some of the eth eth essays, we'll only know uh, in heaven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and she, she was comfortable with that. But she also calls everyone to, you know, recognize when they don't know and to be humble in the presence of the truth and to be humble in the presence of their own ignorance. Mm. And that is something much missing today as people are oftentimes overly sure in their arguments when they don't really know. We're gonna take a little break, but if you want to learn more about the work of Alice von Hildebrand and her husband Dietrich, you can go to Hildebrand Project dot org hildebrandproject.org and find out a lot more about both of them we'll be back in a couple of minutes so please stay with us we want your questions and comments
Welcome back. We are speaking to John Henry Crosby, who is the president of the Hildebrand Project, and he's also the editor of Remnant of Paradise, Selected Essays by Alice von Hildebrand. And this is available at EWTNRC.com, our religious catalog. It is item 73197, 73197. Uh, and it's, it's not something that is real abstract. You know, sometimes I think uh, her husband, uh, Dietrich von Hildebrand, is much more abstract, like many philosophers. That's not the way she writes. She, uh, these essays are very concrete and very insightful. Uh, in fact, one of them had a very charming uh, recollection from her youth about a poor boy in Paris. Uh, and it, when the priest was telling them about Judas hanging himself, Tell us a little bit about that story. Yeah, yeah. It's a wonderful little story, and, and in a way, I seem to remember when, I, when she first showed it to me that, we, uh, that I told her how much it meant to me, and it, I know it meant a lot to her, too. So the, uh, she, this, this was not a, uh, a personal encounter. She read about this, I think, in a diocesan paper about a little boy um, from, a, from a poor background mm -hmm. in a religion class, maybe a First Communion class, and uh, somehow the topic of... Um, of the, the uh, of, of Judas came up, and Judas's ultimate um, despair and the hanging of himself, and these were these were young and innocent children, and apparently it made, according to the description that she'd read, an immense impression on them. And they there was a gasp in the room, and then silence. Um, uh, the startling reality that that Judas had had killed himself, and then the little boy spoke up, and he said, "Father, why did Judas?" Uh, why did Jesus, Judas hang himself Why instead of hanging himself from the neck of Jesus? And that's the end of the whole, the whole story. And she says in her essay, and this is, this is again in the book, she says that, that account that she read secondhand had an immense impact on her, and it taught her something pr profound and deep about what it means to throw ourselves into the mercy of, of God. But the book is full of stories like that. As you say, she, she, didn't, she, tended, she tended away from abstraction. She was very capable of doing sort of philosophical and theological discourse, but her way of communicating was through stories and examples. She was a wonderful reteller of scripture. Mm -hmm. uh, there, 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 are, there are articles in which I think you could say that she's basically somehow channeling a number of scripture stories to make a point. Uh, so yeah. that's, that's the great strength. As a, as a humorous aside, and, and, and I guess I should say, um, I think her husband, Dietrich von Hildebrand, as philosophers goes, is a very accessible uh, philosopher, very close to experience. However, he was a philosopher, and the story goes that one day she said to him, uh, can't you write, couldn't you start writing short books like C.S. Lewis? And he said, no, that's impossible. I'm, I'm German. He, he, he knew what he could and couldn't do. Yeah. So he continued to produce the 500-page books, and she uh, instead produced the much shorter and more accessible volumes. Yeah, uh, one of the reasons, though, I liked that story, is it gets at another theme for her, um, because the, the choice that we have in the face of our sin, like Judas, where we betray Christ, and, uh, you know, Judas, as she points out, Judas had witnessed a number of people 
who repented of sin. He, he was there when the woman caught in adultery was about to be stoned. And, you know, he says, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. And he knew the mercy of Jesus. He'd seen it. He yeah, witnessed yeah, it, yeah, he witnessed this yeah. any number of times. The, the woman whose child or daughter was demon-possessed and the man whose son was demon-possessed, all these st stories. And Judas had that choice either to hang himself on a tree and die because of despair or hang himself on Jesus' neck, throw his arms around Jesus and trust in Jesus' mercy. And he couldn't do that. And that's the choice that everybody has. And she develops that very nicely. And in other essays, she really emphasizes how the modern world is giving in to temptations from Satan. And she, she recognizes from John chapter 8 that Satan is a liar and a murderer. Mm. And so the option of death, of hanging yourself on a tree, uh, hanging our, our culture, committing cultural suicide, yeah. as many cultures do, communist China is doing that with their abortion policy. It's It's this, you know, societal suicide. And we can do that or we can toss ourselves to God's mercy. Mm -hmm. This is very, very key. Yeah. Yes, that, that, that aspect of the fundamental choice that we're presented is, is a great theme in her work. And I'm reminded of the fact, uh, this is, doesn't c concern sort of the choice for good or evil so much, but she would often speculate how the great she, it was a private theological speculation that the great noble pagans whom she loved in a special way like Socrates, uh, that she, she thought that, and maybe this comes out of the fathers even, but she thought that, that, um, that for these noble pagans, Jesus would have presented himself to them in a kind of personal disclosure in those moments between the closing of their eyes and their awaking to uh, to a life after death, yes. and you know, again, I mean, this is a this this, this speaks to this idea that uh, that that God always gives us a choice, and that in the case perhaps of these very special uh, figures who who prepared the ground for Jesus, uh, that even they were perhaps given this kind of choice. But this was something she often came back to. It was obviously on her on her heart when she thought of these beloved figures. Yeah. Well, and again, she she would have. Uh, 1 Timothy 2, verse 4, that God wills all people to be saved. You know, that that would make sense. We have a caller uh, here. Steve, you're in Oregon. What can we do for you? Yes, Father, I was just wondering, uh, Dr. Hillebrand, did she ever talk about hom homosexuality, uh, lesbians? Uh, she talks about male and females, but was that ever brought up with her? Ah, interesting question. Do you know she, she talked much she did. about? She she wrote a number of of essays on the topic, but it was really always as an an extension of her reflections on male and female complementarity. Mm -hmm. um, she uh, I, I do know that she and her husband, uh, uh, in a number at least in one instance in particular, helped and perhaps multiple instances helped people who were struggling with same-sex attraction. There's one case of a very tragic person who I think ended up committing suicide despite their, their efforts. So they, they, um, they had a great 
personal interest in people who were suffering, but it was not maybe a kind of central theme for her and, and, and for him um, as, as, for example, the, 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 the theme of man and woman would have been for them. But yeah. I think, but I think to the you know to the caller's questions, there are some essays that she wrote addressing the topic, and I think that even you know reading what she has to say about man and woman will perhaps uh, help to enlighten some of, of the questions that he may have on these questions of homosexuality. Are these uh, uh, essays that she wrote on the subject of homosexuality available, or are they? Or do you have to go to back issues well, of magazines? They, that, that's a good question. That's a good question. I can't speak to all of them right now. I would suggest that he search. He may find some of them. I want to think. I want to say one of them might be in a homiletic and pastoral review issue. Mm -hmm. um, but I would I would begin by doing some searching uh, for that. And he's certainly welcome to contact us at the Hildebrand Project, which you can yeah, do by we, going to our website, and we have an email address there, and we we receive many queries. Yeah, it would be, um, you know perhaps something to publish that. I think uh, overall, Steve, you know, that the issue of homosexuality has become more prominent mm -hmm. as a larger percentage of the population is, you know, dealing with this, is identifying right. as the uh, le lesbian, gay, and bisexual, and uh, questioning uh, trans. That, that that group has increased and it wasn't as prominent a question in the past as it has become recently. So um, it might be worth gathering some of those yeah. articles together yeah. along with some of her other articles on maleness and femaleness. That's right. That would be perhaps a, a helpful extension into the present moment yeah, as exactly. these issues have become exactly. more pressing. Not that I want to be the editor, but <laughs> just give you more work to do. Uh, I have lifetime job security, Father Mitch. Yeah. The amount of work that she and her husband produced is, is, uh, seems to be unending. Yeah, yeah. And the, the, something that we also uh, did mention is the issue of um, not only the deadliness of satanic uh, in, you know, inducement to, you know, sin, to various ways of taking life. I mean, she included the totalitarianism uh, because her husband had to flee the Nazis. Yeah. He, uh, there was an assassination assignment to kill him from the Nazis, correct? That's right, that's right, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and there were, he was warned and there were multiple warnings that he received and, and fortunately he never, that never happened, of course. But yeah, he lived in constant fear of it. And it's interesting, he didn't just decry the evils of Nazism. He would often say, that he, uses, he would use the phrase frequently that the Antichrist raises his head in Nazism. There was something about Nazism that was, that was not just reducible to human-made evil. There was, there, was a, there, was a, there was an expression of the demonic there. Yes, yes. I don't know if he addressed communism quite as much but uh, it would apply to them too. Yeah, oh, yeah certainly, certainly, yeah. 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 yeah, and in fact, his anti-Nazi newspaper in Vienna was unique in that it was an anti-Nazi, anti-communist newspaper. And as you know, at the time, often the communists and the Nazis were each other's primary enemy, but he saw them as deeply akin to each other, he, you know, like, like evil twins. Uh, well, they had the same totalitarian roots despite their political differences. So that made his, the, his newspaper rather unique that he took aim at both of these left and right 
ideologies. Uh, it oh. became more of a preoccupation for him after he came to the States with the rise and spread of communism. Yes. I think when he was in Vienna, there was such a focus on the immediate threat of Nazi Germany looming over Austria. Yeah, I, I, I think that um, it's very important for us, and, and their reflections are important on this, um, that Nazis, Nazism, and communism are were enemies of each other, yeah. not because their ideas were so different, but because they were competitors to push yeah. the role of the state dominating the economy, planning the economy, controlling the economy. And when they control the economy, they control human freedom. That was the goal of both Nazis and communists. They just didn't want the other guy to do it. They wanted to do it. Yeah. And that was the only, that's, and she was 100% right on that. But you, you made the interesting observation about the, this sense of the reality of the devil and the reality of, of demonic evil. I, I don't think that I would ever want to say that either Dietrich or Alice von Hildebrand had a kind of an excessive preoccupation. I think they, no. they certainly no. believed in the ultimate power of God. They didn't leave, live with a kind of, you know, sort of, there's a kind of fascination that sometimes accompanies people interested in sort of spiritual warfare, right. for example. There was none of that there, but they had a very tangible sense of the presence of a real profound evil, sometimes infiltrating the church, sometimes showing up in particularly grievous crimes. Abortion was in, in her mind uh, an expression of the devil as the murderer of all life, right? And yeah. so she was always reminding us that, that, uh, that Eve is referred to as the mother of the living. So yeah, that, 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 the, that's the name that Adam gave to her after the fall, yeah, you know, before the fall into original sin, she's simply called woman, yeah, which is partly why our Lord addresses the Blessed Virgin, his mother, as woman. Mm. This is the woman before the fall. Mm. She hasn't sinned, mm. and so she is woman. But uh, after the fall. Adam still gives his bride this wonderful name, the mother of the living. Yeah. And she, uh, Alice talks a lot about how that leads to this ongoing, you know, millennial long, uh, multi-millennial long antipathy between the woman and Satan. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. As I said at the beginning, she has these great archetypes that inform her thinking and her imagination. And again, there, this, this struggle between the woman, and she likes to point out it was between the weaker sex and the devil, not between the strong sex. <laughs> this is her, uh, her, her way of reminding us that you and I are just, after all, we are mere men, uh, as she was wont to say. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, it's, uh, these, these are all wonderful uh, reflections that that are that they're all contained in the book, and they, they 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 have a way of overlapping in these essays. I mean, as essays, they sometimes cover some of the the same territory, but with with constantly shedding new light on these on these questions. Yeah, and I think it's important for us to reflect on how the uh, Satan opposed the woman, and she develops all the way through to the Book of Revelation. You know, and to see that. We are in between the, the first temptation and then the last battle of Satan against the Blessed Mother, the woman. Yes. And that 
we still see that as ongoing. And that was part of her perspective, that we have to be part of that battle at this time. We have another caller on. Hello, Tom? Yes, hello. Good that you're calling from Seattle? Yes, sir. Great, great. What, what can we do for you today? I appreciate that. I would like to ask, when did Alice von Hildebrand make her way to the United States from Europe, and what were the circumstances? Oh, good question. Well, she came as a, as a young girl um, at the age of um, just 17 from Belgium when Belgium was invaded by the Nazis, and she and her sister were sent ahead uh, while her father and mother and her other siblings stayed behind. Mm -hmm. uh, there, was, there was fear of the risk to them as young women with the uh, approaching Nazi troops, mm -hmm. and so they, uh, they went by, um, by, by ship, uh, and uh, she had a, a, an extraordinary moment on the way because this ship was, uh, was intercepted by a Nazi U-boat, and they were told that they had very little time to, you know, to get all of the passengers off, and the ship was going to be uh, would be torpedoed. And she describes this kind of life-changing experience on the deck of the of the SS Washington. It was, and uh, she said, looking out into the misty North Atlantic, uh, her entire life flashed before her eyes, and uh, everything, as she said, that she had done, failed to do, um, and. Uh, and she, and, but it convinced her of God's mercy because it was this opportunity to the previous uh, point of our conversation, again, to make this choice for God, uh, being given this, this opportunity to sort of see her whole life before her. Um, and it convinced her of God's mercy, she says. Mm -hmm. uh, then the, uh, the captain of the ship was able to persuade the, 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 uh, the U-boat uh, uh, captain that this was a ship of refugees and not carrying military supplies, so they were allowed to go on. And so then they eventually came to the United States, where she lived with an aunt and uncle. She had a Belgian uncle who lived in New York. He was a banker, mm -hmm. and they lived there together for a number of years, and this is how she first arrived in the States. They were not happy years initially. She was not... Um, uh, the uncle favored her sister and did not much appreciate Lily, and she was told nothing would become of her. She was sent to secretarial school to learn to type, which is the great irony because that typing is, is surely the reason many of her husband's books saw the, saw the light of day. He would write by hand. She typed everything, including multiple times, to get his books into, into print. So that, that's, that's just a, a very brief uh, account of how she arrived here and then this, this incredible experience that she had yeah. at sea. And it also matured her, she said. She went from being a child to an adult in just uh, what was ultimately minutes. In, her, in the Memoirs of a Happy Failure, which is the memoirs that I helped her to write back in 2000, well, she had written it, but I helped her to expand it, there's a photo essay and there's actually a photo of her and her sister on the deck of the SS Washington before wow. it was clear that the ship would be spared. Wow. So it's a very dramatic document of that period. Cool. Well, again, we want to encourage you to find out more about all this. You can go to hildebrandproject.org. And for some of the topics that we've discussed tonight, the, the book that we've been looking at is called Remnant of Paradise. Selected Essays by Alice von Hildebrand. It's item number 73197. And it's available at EWTNRC.com. So we urge you to get that. They're, they're fun to read. 
I want to thank you very much, John Henry, for being here with us and for editing this book and making it available to us. And want to also offer you the Lord's blessing. May Almighty God bless you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And over the years, we were able to bring you Alice von Hildebrand in series and on the live programs with Mother and me and others. And we can continue to do these programs only because the network is brought to you by you. So please remember to keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill. Mother was inspired to have us operate that way, and then we'll pay our bills too. God bless you and thank you.